Hey y'all, I'm Bernie. I'm Evie. And I'm Nicole. And you're listening to Woke Woke Docs, a podcast about the lives of women of color in medicine and health justice. For the third episode of our summer series, we are so hyped for you to hear and learn from the wisdom and electric energy of Dr. Monica McLemore, Assistant Professor of Family Healthcare Nursing at UCSF. Together, we talk about health injustices faced by Black mothers and the amazing work of Black Mamas Matter Alliance. In addition, we talk about the importance of reproductive justice frameworks and the brilliant work that Dr. McLemore has done and continues to imagine with love for the health and well-being of Black mothers. In addition, we'd like to announce two exciting events. We are holding two live events here in the SF Bay Area to launch our third season and would love for our supporters and listeners to slide through and join us in community and love. First, we're having an intimate dinner gathering for women of color medical students at UCSF on Tuesday, August 27th from 6 to 8 p.m. In addition, we will be having an open community event and live podcasting recording at Red Bay Coffee in Oakland on Friday, September 27th from 6 to 8 p.m. This event will center on the topic of whole person health and healing by and for women of color with voices from medicine, the community, and holistic healing practitioners in the Bay Area. More information about both of these events will be released on our Twitter with the hashtag, hashtag WokeWokeDocs, on Instagram at our handle, at WokeWokeDocs, and our website, WokeWokeDocs.com. We are continuing to wish all of our listeners an amazing summer. Stay woke, y'all, and thanks for tuning in. Hey, y'all, what's up? Happy almost end of July. Oof, crazy. Um, We are going to start off with this wonderful check-in question suggested by Monica, and it is, what is your favorite summer spot? Who shall I pass it to? Nicole. Um, So my favorite summer spot, I've been going home a lot this summer, and so it's definitely, I think, Zuma Beach. I was going to say Santa Monica, but Zuma is like in the Malibu area, and so it's a little bit, you actually get more animals there. You get to see more animals in the beach. So that's been really awesome. I saw a whale, like for the first time ever. I was just like, <laughs> like sitting on the towel, and I saw a whale. So that was really awesome. And then it's also close enough to my house where, like, I get to be with my family and have enough time to go to the beach. So it's really really nice. Eva. Uh, my favorite summer spot would probably also be the beach. <laughs> um, all these, yeah, SoCal girls. I'm gonna say Santa Monica. Just because, not not because Santa Monica is like, oh, this is an amazing beach. Like, this is the nicest, prettiest beach. Like, no, not because of that. Just because one of my best friends, she lived close to Santa Monica Beach. So I would go to her house and spend a lot of time with her during the summer. And so it was like, all right, we're home. What are we going to do? Let's just go to the beach. So that just became the, the place that we would go to because it was just close by. I know it's not like the prettiest or special. And there's like so many tourists and all that. But I think I just spent probably the most time at that beach. So it makes me just think of like my summers growing up so that's gonna be mine i'm gonna pass it to our special guest monica monica what is your summer spot so first of all thank you all for having me on i'm glad to be here with you all for people who know me they know that the santa cruz beach boardwalk not the beach but the (laughs) beach boardwalk okay is the place to go because i'm all about the games prizes rides and they have the best, like, wine and beer. And if you need carnival food, that's the place to go. So it's the beach boardwalk, not the beach. Because I actually only step in the sand in the winter. 
just to be clear. It's the boardwalk. It's the boardwalk. It's one of my favorite places. And, you know, on Wednesday nights, it's, um, you know, the Pepsi night. So every all hot dogs are 50 cents. So there's a dollar. They do everything like back in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. They price things that way. And on Friday nights, they project a movie out on the water. And you sit on the beach. And you can watch old 80s movies. And they have bands on Friday nights. And so I'll be going to see Living Color on August 9th. Amazing. August 9th, y'all. It is in the calendar. Penciled <laughs> in. She's ready Doing to go. <laughs> Doing it. Um, and Bernie, you? Summer spot? Summer spot. Okay. Well, I got to expand mine because a poor those bakery just Ooh. opened up 10 minutes from my place. Instead of going down to Burbank. Uh-uh. Sorry, Nicole. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Right, oh, so man. I've been going to Portland. I get my pastries. Yes. We get the big-ass bags. <laughs> we bring them to the beach. And, yeah, I'm going to have to say, I know, I know, y'all. I'm going to have to say the bougie Orange County beaches are my, my favorite summer spot. Wow. I'd say, like, Huntington, Huntington. Laguna, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, because I do belong there. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Let them know. Let them Let know. know. I, I belong. You deserve to be we there. We all belong. <laughs> Beaches wow. are public places. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree with that. Um, we are so blessed and humbled to have Dr. Monica McLemore here in this space, and we are so excited to learn um, and be in conversation with their wisdom, especially as you have um, really created so many bridges between um, the academy, the community, with research, with so many different people who are usually not in dialogue with each other. Um, from your work, you have really been a connector and a facilitator, and we are super excited to have this conversation on a very important topic that's happening right now in so many amazing community organizations and initiatives that are um, really doing the work, mm. um, addressing black maternal health and this um, topic that continually needs to be at the forefront of everyone's minds. And so as a first question, uh, Monica, we would love if you could just tell us more about um, what are the ongoing health injustices facing black mothers today? Well, first of all, I mean, I, I always like to start in rem reminding people that like black women are some of the most badass people in the world. And I, I think that our capacity for you know, wellness and livelihood and resilience, that, that really needs to be lifted up. That said, the health injustices that we see, you know, I think are, are across the reproductive spectrum. Um, and and I think that, that, you know, I've said this and it makes me unpopular in some circles, but whether it's clinical health services provision or public health or even in academia where I am, I, I think one of the, the biggest uh, risk factors that black women have in the world is overexposure to racism. And, you know, when I say that people, you know, they are so uncomfortable talking about racism, but the truth of the matter is, you know, there is nothing inherently wrong with black people and there is nothing inherent about black skin that overexposes anybody to anything except racism. And so for me, it, it's it's been this huge mission to sort of think about whether you're uh, of childbearing age or whether, you know, you are a, you know, young person, you hear these epidemiologic and other types of statistics that constantly 
paint you in a negative light, like something inherently is wrong with you. And one of the sort of tenets of my work has always been to sort of upend that conversation and actually put the blame on the blamey. Um, and so for me, you know, when you want to look at and describe differences among and between groups of people, I think that's that's fine, except that if you don't contextualize where, you know, fault and blame lies, then then we're already conditioned as a nation, as a world, as a country to think that there's something inherently wrong with black people or that black people inherently are not citizens or that we, you know, need to go somewhere else, even if we're really from a place. So I, I fundamentally think that one of the, the main tenets that we have to think about in terms of black maternal health, and I mean both health and wellness, and I mean both in the context of justice and injustice, is we have to get past all the lies that racism told us. And, you know, I, I get that language from Ibram Kendi, who I really love and I'm currently obsessed over um, because his work is just incredible. But there are some lies that are sci- like scientifically codified um, that people actually think are truths. And one of those is that that black race is a risk factor for something. And I actually push back against that because, you know, as as good friends and colleagues have taught me, um, the only thing that black skin does is overexpose you to racism. And so fundamentally and conceptually, that to me is is the thing that we need to be focusing on. Now, a lot of people get confused in terms of how that shows up. Oh, well, I'm a good person. I went into the healing professions because I'm a good person. I want to serve the public. But they don't understand how racism is a, it's a structure. And so I have to explain it to them. So I say things like this. You know, if you're less inclined to believe me when I tell you something, um, especially around my own surveillance of my signs and symptoms of how I am doing in my own body that I live in every day, then that's, that's, that's a problem, mm-hmm. right? But I also think it's a problem that if I roll up to my hospital, if I need to seek services, and I bring my six foot six black brother-in-law who's a close friend of mine and he's been married to my sister for 30 years and you're intimidated by black men. Or as Charles Johnson talks about Kira Johnson's husband who unnecessarily died after her second C-section. He says when he was in the hospital with his wife Kira and her two brothers were there, the nurses were so afraid to enter the room because three black men were there. I mean, that's kind of how racism shows up in healthcare encounters. It's not, you know, you called me an N-word or you, you know, refused me service. It doesn't show up that way. People don't realize how ingrained racism is in our society that they can't see it. So that when you try to talk about how it shows up in health services provision, you've got to go so far back to talk about it that, you know, you'll have people come to me and say, well, you know, cardiomyopathy is the biggest reason why black women are dying, you know, during pregnancy. And I say, slow your roll. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what are the factors that contribute to cardiomyopathy Mm -hmm. in healthy pregnant people? right? 
or what are the you know sort of conditions that we expect that are normal in pregnancy but that we know can be harmful if other contextual factors are going on. So that's how, I, I really breaking it down in terms of, of just getting people simply to understand race is not a risk factor for anything, it's racism or overexposure to it. And how it shows up is structural. Yes, interpersonal relationship, like racism happens between individuals, but it's really embedded in our structures and in, in terms of how we offer and provide healthcare. And that hurts for some people to hear. Like when I say things like, you know, I am a black person, I'm turning 50 this year, I've never had a black person take care of me in my whole entire life. People get very defensive about that when I say that. Mm -hmm. But you don't understand what it's like to have to code switch day and night all the time and have to really teach someone how to take care of you and then have them dismiss you, right? It's, it's just a, an added level of stress and weathering and on top of having to do that in every other domain or facet of your life. Mm -hmm. So for me, for those people who really wanna be healers and who really enter public health or, or care of the public, I always say empathy and curiosity have to be your go-to emotional reactions to every situation and circumstance when you find yourself caring for the public. Mm -hmm. When you speak, it also makes me think of how like those different situations, some people categorize that as microaggressions, but these aggressions are not micro. They're not micro. They are super macro. They're super, and there's, and that's why, you know, I don't like, you know, yeah, implicit bias. What about the explicit bias, right? We lose so much when we can't tell the truth about what's going on. And so one of the things I see myself as is a truth teller, because I think that, that from true empathy, you are really, really able to ask some strategic questions. And if you're always curious, and that means nobody's mad at you when you're asking questions, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I was that little kid, but mom, why? But why not? Okay, but then why is that like that? Like, I've been that person a lot, and I think, um, you know, being curious and asking questions is one of the most important skills we can teach the current and the future healthcare workforce. Mm -hmm. One of the other things I think we need to deal with, and, and uh, you know, this again, this makes me unpopular when I say it, but we got to stop blaming patients. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, uh, pregnant people or, you know, obese folks or smokers or cancer patients, let's stop blaming patients. Right, and, and we know how to do this. I always give the examples of like people who are in extreme sports. Like if you're in the NFL, you, you can subject yourself to injury and, and people don't judge you at all, right? Every year you know that you have a, a shelf life on your tradability and your contracts and yet we don't sit in judgment and say, you know, every year he went out there and got that knee hurt, right? So when you think about people who smoke or when you think about people who are obese, or even if you think about like, you know, when you come into the emergency department because you've been shot or hit by a car, the first question we ask you is not, well, who shot you, right? Or who was driving that car that hit you? That, that All that seeking someone to blame, mm -hmm. I don't know when that came into reproductive health, but mm -hmm. we, we have other places where we know how to care for people 
irrespective of the conditions, situations, and circumstances that got them there. So I don't want to understand why we can't translate that. Um, and actually, I do, right? We know why. Because people do think that people with the capacity for pregnancy are to be exclusively blamed for the outcomes of their pregnancies. Let me say that again, because a lot of times people have to hear that twice in order to really hear me. But people with the capacity for pregnancy are seen as exclusively responsible for the outcomes of their pregnancies. So if the pregnancy ends, let's say they choose to have an abortion, they're blamed for that. Or if they have a preterm birth, they're blamed for that. Or if they go into preterm labor, they're blamed for that. There's, there's this thing around how, you know, the uterus and the body in which the pregnancy exists is the only environment. And meanwhile, that body lives in an environment that's warming. That body lives in an environment, if you're in Flint, with toxic water. That body lives, in, right? So we act to, to hone down on the person with the capacity for pregnancy and not the full environment in which they live in is limiting, problematic, and we need to stop. That's what I think. That was a rant. I'm sorry, but Monica goes on a rant about this kind of stuff because it bothers me. It bothers me. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Black Mamas Matters Alliance and also Black Maternal Health Week? Yes. So um, a lot of people don't know that BMMA, so Black Mamas Matter Alliance, it's centered in Atlanta because um, I have come to agree with my colleagues um, that reproductive justice work needs to be centered in the South. Um, it was developed by black women and people in advocacy space have really, really pushed the narrative around reproductive justice and, and we need to honor the work that our elders and, our, and people who came before us did. So Black Women's Matter Alliance was formed um, after a convening in 2015. Um, and they are some of the most badass people in the country doing really incredible work at the policy level, at the advocacy level, at the health services provision level, and soon to be at the research level. Uh, BMMA does not have chapters. I like to demystify that information because people think that there are chapters. Um, that's not true. What BMMA, the way that their structure works is we have collaborators, which are individuals, and kindred partners which are organizations or institutions. So I'll give you a perfect example. I am a collaborator to Black Mamas Matter Alliance. The doula collective that I work with, the Roots of Labor Birth Collective, is a kindred partner. Mm -hmm. So if you're an organization or institution, irrespective of your, your tax status, you don't have to be a 501c3 or LLC or anything like that to be a kindred partner. You just have to be an organization with a website, a logo, a charter, a mission, vision, and values. So I was one of the first people that really wanted to jump in and support the work of the Black Mamas Matter Alliance. So when they launched their first Black Maternal Health Awareness Week in 2017, at that time I was at UCSF, I was helping the UCSF Preterm Birth Initiative, which is a multi-site, multi-sector uh, program um, that's grounded at UCSF that works in San Francisco, Oakland, and Fresno. At that time I was the Associate Director for Community Engaged Work and I was like, oh my God, we're doing a Black Maternal Health Week, yes! And not one event was planned for Black Maternal Health Awareness Week the first year it happened. And for people who remember, it culminated with a congressional 
overview and a proclamation from Senator, Senator Kamala Harris. And it ended with this incredible New York Times Magazine piece written by Linda Fiorosa, who's one of the oldest, baddest black journalists that we have in the country. Um, in fact, I believe she came out as lesbian in Ebony, like in the 70s. So when people saw what that advocacy week did when they saw the media, the social media, the awareness, the amount of coverage that we got. People, in retrospect, at the end of Black Maternal Health Awareness Week, went, why didn't we do something for that? And I just sat there and I looked at them like this. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> Not to joke, you see that, but I have the Monica face. <laughs> um, and so I, that was one of the reasons why I wanted a full week of events. That's why I was so extra this year, because we didn't do anything for the first Black Maternal Health Awareness Week. I also knew that what was coming was Representative Alma Adams and Representative Lauren Underwood, who happens to be a nurse, shout out for the nurses, um, were going to establish the Black Maternal Caucus in the House. And so we knew that there were big things that were coming and we really wanted to hallmark the events. But what people didn't know was in January, I was um, nominated to co-chair the research working group. So there are three working groups under BMMA. One was, is the care, holistic care working group. And last year, they released the black paper around setting the standards for holistic clinical care with formed by black mamas. The policy working group last December uh, released their policy agenda. So what would a policy agenda look like uh, with formed by black mamas? And this year, the research working group was supposed to uh, release our uh, research rubric as well as the policies, guidelines, and procedures for the conduct of research with foreign by black mamas, as well as the process paper that we went through to develop those standards, practices, and guidelines. Um, and we decided that it wasn't ready for prime time, uh, but we did have a webinar about it during Black Maternal Health Awareness Week. What other people didn't also realize, or the public didn't realize, but BMMA understood, was that the single author data visualization project that I did for Scientific American to talk about how to fix black maternal health, the first step was to not blame them. We knew that was coming. What we didn't know is that the, the editors of Scientific American would make that free um, and available to folks for download um, during Black Maternal Health Awareness Week, and they did that without us asking. I got a blind email on the Friday before Black Maternal Health Awareness Week, and they was like, look, we're going to make this available. I was like, what? I was like, ah! Um, so that begs the question, what happened to the research rubric and the research report? So I was asked to participate in um, an incredible piece of writing that's going to be coming out in the winter, spring of 2020. Uh, from the Harvard Law and Policy Review. Um, the whole edition is going to be called The Politics of Pregnancy. And so I've talked with the editors and the people who are responsible for that edition, and they have agreed that we, we as BMMA, um, can publish the research rubric and a um, annotated version of the actual report as my contribution to um that journal piece. So that's one of two really amazing pieces of writing that I'm going to drop next year. 
on behalf of BMMA. And so it will be, you know, in the prestigious Harvard Law and Policy Review. Um, I, I will remind people the last single author uh, person who did a piece was Kamala Harris. Um, and of course, you know, President Obama did a piece in the review before the launching of the ACA. So BMMA, Black Mamas Matter Alliance, is uh, my relationship as the, the sort of co-chair of the research of working group is to really direct the research agenda for BMMA. I hosted a dinner at our convening in June in Atlanta with about 25 black women researchers who are part of BMMA um, across the country and um, an intern who's working with me, Brittany Farrell, who currently works with the Black Futures Lab on the Black Census Project with Alicia Garza and, and their team. She came to the dinner with me and, and we put forward some ideas. And so that whole research agenda will be coming in the fall, um, as well as this sort of piece um, really outlining the best practices, guidelines, and research rubric uh, that should be used with form by black mamas, both individuals and communities. So very excited about that. I love Black Mamas Matter Alliance. I could talk about them forever. <laughs> Um, and Black Maternal Health Awareness Week, for people who don't know, we already have the dates. It's April 11th through the 17th of 2020. Um, and we, we, we are planning some really fun, really cool activities. Again, a week-long celebration and bringing out some of our colleagues and collaborators to help in 2020. We brought in um, Marsha Jones and her team from the AFIA Center in Texas. Uh, which is a practical support organization and a, and a deeply religiously affiliated organization, reproductive justice organization in Texas. And we brought them uh, to report, uh, record their podcast, which is called The Praise Report. And it's so interesting, Emma and their team, they have black women read together for 30 minutes, a book of their own choosing, and then talk about what they've read and record that interaction um, as part of the sort of overview for the podcast. So it's just a really innovative way to have people reading all together. Different books, you can you, they bring the books. You get to decide which one you want to be able to read. You read for 30 minutes, and then you talk about, you reflect on anything that you read or anything that you learned or anything that made you uncomfortable or whatever. It was incredible. So that will be coming out as well. So we're Black Women's Matter Alliance is a huge... Um, endeavor for me because I think they are starting to get right the intersection between research, care provision, policy, clinical practice, and having a community engagement process through the alliance. That really, I think, is an exemplar and, and should be spread in ways that I think are important. Wow. Sounds awesome. And your passion just like really shows through when you're talking about all of these topics. And it's like, infectious like i feel like you ready to work yeah with i'm like where was yeah it's amazing <laughs> um so i think um if you could tell us a little bit more about um reproductive justice framework versus yeah. reproductive rights oh yeah i i could talk about this all day so you know for me really being introduced to reproductive justice changed my life and I have to say that in a lot of different ways. So I'm a nurse. My baccalaureate degree is in nursing. Um, you know, I could give out narcotics before I could, like, actually drink as an adult because I, I <laughs> you know, became a nurse at 20, right? Um, and so it's all that I've ever really done for pay. 
and I love nursing. Anybody who knows me knows that. Um, and my master's work is in public health. I went to San Francisco State Community Health Education. That was like a huge thing that I really wanted to be able to do. PhD is in oncology genomics, and I did a lot of basic science and bench work. This was at a time when we mapped the human genome. So, you know, you get a free PhD then. We used to invest in public education. I think we should start doing that again. Um, but, you know, so I thought, how can I marry together, you know, this long nursing career that I've had since, you know, 1988, how do I bring in community health education? And then how do I think about genome work or biological markers? And the, for years, everybody, people would be very critical of me. I had advisors say, well, what are you, you're learning all these methods. What are you just going to be a methodologist? I had one mentor tell me that I was intellectually promiscuous. And I was like, I made the Monica face again. <laughs> but what, at that time, I didn't have the language to clearly articulate Reproductive health services provision is when you come into my clinic at San Francisco General and I engage with you, whether it's to do your ultrasound or put your IV in, to do your procedural sedation or sit with you in the recovery room and monitor your bleeding. That's reproductive health services. Mm -hmm. Reproductive rights are the legal protections that we think about, the policy advocacy agendas that, that really are sort of a level above. So all this craziness around, you know, the new Title X rules and the conscious and healthcare and, oh, you can't mix family planning and abortion dollars and, oh, we're going to have legislative and abortion restrictions and criminalizing pregnant people. That's reproductive rights. That's the legal battles that we need to ensure that we can have reproductive health services provision. Reproductive justice is a whole different thing than that, but it includes both of those things. So RJ is this sort of, I, I like to call it a public health praxis, but also a theory that is grounded in human rights. And so a lot of people don't understand in the United States we have negative rights because of the way we were founded, right? So we came and we colonized and we were trying to protect ourselves from the British Empire. So our rights are negative, like to protect us from the government intruding on us because we didn't want Britain coming over here telling us what we could and couldn't do. So we don't have positive rights. We don't have human rights, right? We are protected from, like our, our speech rights allow us to be able to say what we want to be able to say, but, we, but there is no constitutionally protected right to healthcare in the United States, except in one population. And that population has, happens to be incarcerated persons. Why? Because they're under the control of the state. Right. So in a situation where you don't have a constitutionally protected right to health care, unless you're incarcerated, reproductive justice allows you to think differently around what what human rights do we affirm and how do we align health services and a legal agenda around those human rights. So simply put, reproductive justice, the way we think about it is people have the human right to create family, to become pregnant and to birth and to determine those conditions under which they will create family, right? So that covers all of the home birth and, and birth center birth. And if people have a right to birth, if you're differently abled or you're disabled, you have a right to birth. If you, you know, are someone who is trans identified, you have a right to birth. That covers all them folks, right? Reproductive justice, the second tenant says that you have a right not to become pregnant and to prevent pregnancy or in pregnancy with dignity if you so choose to do so. 
So that means if you're a childless by choice person like me, you have the right to be a whole human irrespective of your reproductive capacity. Or if you have a pregnancy and you don't want to be, you have the right to be able to end that pregnancy with dignity, right? But one of the most interesting tenets of reproductive justice, it says that you have the right to parent the children that you already have without fear from any individual or from the state. And that fear is grounded in violence, right? So that covers your intimate partner violence folks, that covers, you know, incarcerated persons shouldn't have to be automatically separated from their children, right? That covers all them people. And it also covers the folks that, you know, it covers infertility services and, and other people whose reproduction that we um, try to manage in the carceral system. The last piece of reproductive justice that I really appreciate is this capacity to disassociate, you know, sex and gender from reproduction. Then that opens up a conversation around healthy sexuality and pleasure and consent, which I think is a conversation that we way needed long ago. But if you can't contextualize sexuality as a, as a normal and whole part of a human life, right? If you can't even say that, then that where are people supposed to learn about healthy sexuality or consent or even pleasure, mm-hmm. right? So for me, RJ is so different than rights and so different than health because it's bigger than that. It makes us more curious to imagine how these things could be different. And it opens up this whole new possibility of thinking about how could we be doing this better? Mm-hmm. It also engages the people that we're lucky enough to serve in that conversation. So that the conversation around whether or not we should teach sex ed in, in schools isn't a religious argument versus the you know public school department argument. It says, what's the future we imagine for our children? How do we help them integrate that healthy sexuality as a part of that future that they envision? And how do we get them to understand their reproductive life course and to meet the goals that they want? See how that's a real different conversation? Mm-hmm. So, uh, that, so I went, first time I read RJ, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> there it is. And I retooled my entire research career mm-hmm. around understanding that frame. I finally had the language mm-hmm. and the framework that I needed to explain what I, you know, sort of knew on my genome. Like I knew I wasn't intellectually promiscuous. I wasn't chasing grants like a lot of people do, or wasn't just, you know, sort of trying to be on the next hot topic. So I could, that, that wasn't it. It's like black women experience health and their well-being in different ways. And this gets to a new concept that I've been working on, really trying to get folks to understand there are no default humans. There is a myth that there are default humans and there just aren't default humans. And what that means is, is like, why would I study people in jail? They Folks were so horrified when that was the first project I did after my PhD, after studying the genome. And I, for me, it was very obvious. It's like black women experience healthcare in the carceral system, in the secular system, and in the military, because we're overrepresented in, in all of those areas. So it made total sense to me, but I didn't have the language to explain that to mentors. Now under RJ, I can very clearly delineate why carceral health has to be a part of how we think about health services for black women or why military health has to be part of that sort of package because that's where we live, work, play, pray, thrive, and sing.
And shout out to RJ was really founded and catapulted by black women and indigenous women, women of color, trans people. Um, and it's just so beautiful that that has really amplified your work yeah. and allowed this amazing passion to shine through. Yeah. Uh, I was really glad when I found my way. And and the other thing I really like about reproductive justice is it, it, it it's not limited to the people with capacity for pregnancy. It, it makes a societal argument, you know, that people involved in the pregnancy, irrespective of what your relationship is, have a, have a like, you're the village, mm-hmm. you're the right? Village. You're the village. Like, I'm the aunt of the year for a lot of people's kids. I am not, I am fairy god aunt, right? And RJ allows, everybody has a public responsibility to everybody's children. Imagine how different that is in a conversation around family separation. Those are our kids, right? That's everybody's kids, right? Not just those people's kids. Imagine how different of a of a policy agenda we would have right now if if our if the people who represented us in congress understood the important role that reproductive justice could play in different conversations just imagine that right this would all look very different you had mentioned your amazing work with the black mamas matters alliance Mm -hmm. who are other people activists amazing movers and shakers that we need to know that our listeners need to know and pay attention to so the first group of people i would say um they used to call well black women birthing justice is a kindred partner of the black mamas matter alliance and the black women bwbj black women birthing justice put out two seminal publications while i was having my um, epiphany around reproductive justice and one is called um, Birthing Justice. It's a hardcover book um, that it basically is the black women's what to expect when you're expecting. And it's an amazing book that, that really helps with childbirth prep, childbirth education. The other thing that they put out is a free downloadable PDF, but it's also a published book um, of the 100 birthing stories that they collected around the state of California. And it's called Battling Over Birth. And it is one of the most amazing, heart-wrenching things that you will read because it's in the words of black birthing folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use that language purposely because there's two trans um, stories from trans-identified people in, in the book. And so Black Women Birthing Justice is, is out of Mills College, um, and they are you know, one of the first groups to really think about a um, birthing person's bill of rights. Um, and I really love them. I first met them as a novice researcher because I got some funding to be able to pilot test doula work that we were already doing in the jails in San Francisco, here in Oakland. And I wanted a a black woman-led program and I needed some doula trainers. And so the, the second group of people that should be on your radar are the Roots of Labor Birth Collective, so RLBC. Um, they started off as the East Bay Community Birth Support Project, and basically they were the doulas who were going into Santa Rita Jail um, to support birthing and pregnant individuals at the jail. Now we've expanded. They go every Monday. We still have an outreach program. And they have what they call the doula sharing circle, and it really is a space for any person who wants to come and, and talk about any health-related issue. 
Um, we do have pregnant people that we work with there. Um, and we have people whose births we support when they get out. Um, but, but Roots of Labor Birth Collective, every grant I write, I make sure that they have some kind of role um, because they just do incredible work. And I've learned, as a nurse, I've learned so much from doulas um, that I almost exclusively spend a lot of my time um, in community with doulas. Um, and so those would be the two really big organizations that I spend a lot of time with. Uh, Expecting Justice and the team in San Francisco with Sister Web Doulas, important group of people. They, so when London Breed, the black mayor in San Francisco, came into office, one of the things that first things that she did was to create a pilot program to determine whether or not uh, doulas could be offered to all birthing people of color who birth as general without cost. And... Um, that project is being spearheaded by Expecting Justice, which is a program under the Preterm Birth Initiative, and Sister Web Doulas, which is a community-based uh, doula project uh, grounded in San Francisco, and it's black, indigenous, and Latinx doulas um, who are really, really developing that work, and they're amazing. There's, there's so much hope out here, y'all. Oh my gosh. We got this. I mean, I, and that's why I've been trying to be very intentional this year about the doom and gloom narrative. One of the reasons, like, we, we got to stop acting like we can't fix this. We actually can. And so one of the things that I've been pushing BMMA and we've been pivoting around is making sure to continue balancing the awareness around the maternal health crisis, but also, like, creating some supplemental materials so that people aren't going into birth um, fearful, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because there's a difference between being afraid from being fearful, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. like, really trying to help the public understand that distinction and also trying to say, like, y'all, there are interventions that work that we could do and test. This is not a manifest destiny. Right, there are things that we can do, like having a doula and group, you know, care where you're having peer to peer learning from your colleagues and your collaborators, and you're never left alone with the provider. So, when all those comments and all those macro and microaggressions happen, you're never alone, that's witnessed, and there is a process for that to get dealt with. You know, there's bystander training that we can have with individuals so you know how to safely intervene. And when, when racist things get said or when, when racism shows up in our structures. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest things I spend a lot of time teaching nurses is you can't police people who are around for birthing folks. Mm -hmm. So that even our fundamental policies, how many people you can have in your room during visiting hours? Mm -hmm. Like people don't get that. That assumes that you structured your family in a very specific way and only mm -hmm. that's the default that's acceptable. Right? It's that kind of stuff that we can actually really fix. Mm -hmm. But people think, you know, oh, this is so overwhelming. We can't do anything about it. And I'm like, oh, no, actually we can. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, that's the other piece to this. I think if people could get past their fear, mm -hmm. we could actually unleash the creativity of humanity and we could actually get to some even better solutions mm -hmm. besides group care or besides peer-to-peer -peer learning or in addition to but people got to get past, oh, that's such a big problem. We can't do anything about it. Seriously. Seriously. No. There's a ton we can do. Right? 
I mean, nine years ago, I wouldn't. I was one of those people that first slept out to get the iPhone. I was like one of the first <laughs> iPhones. I never thought I'd be walking around with a computer in my pocket. And here we are, you know, ten years later. I've run my entire life from that device. We need some generative, like thinking. Mm-hmm. But people got to get. You can't be generative when you're afraid. Mm-hmm. And so I need folks to get beyond their fear and all that and judgment and blame and shame and all. And we could actually really fix this. And that's part of where I'm going to be pushing BMMA with data to really get people to understand like what works, what doesn't, how can we incentivize what does, boom, we're doing this. It's going to be fabulous. Mm-hmm. What is your vision and future that you imagine for black mothers? So I'm crazy. Um, and I, and I, say that, I, I say that in ways because I actually think like I'm an academic, right? Black academic. Um, and so I think we should have people with lived experience birthing folks as department chairs. Like we should have co-chair models for leadership, whether it's in science or academia for teaching. As we think about how we want to better educate the future birthing workforce or the future public health workforce, community members got to be engaged. And they can't be onlys. They can't be by themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. I think we need... Um, black women accountability circles that have power so that when organizations screw up, whether it's the Preterm Birth Initiative or CMQCC or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention or the funder, whoever it is, community black women should be that the, the accountability circle and they should be paid for that expertise. Mm-hmm. I have this idea where I would like to have a community advisory board exclusively made up of black Twitter where I partner with Cash App so I can pay them for their opining around things that we put out in terms of research protocols, mm-hmm. right? Anybody, anybody, because I believe that the expertise that we need is collectively from all those individuals. So I'd like to see community um, advisory boards uh, pay through Cash App on Twitter. I'd also like to see a community-based uh, uh, institutional review board. Every study that comes out is not to protect, not exclusively to protect the institution and organization from harm that happens in research, but I want communities to say, that study is harmful, Mm -hmm. right? Or to be able to say, why are you asking that question that way? That's not gonna help us. Mm -hmm. This is what you need to be doing, Mm -hmm. right? I don't understand. Uh, The other thing I really wanna figure out how to pilot I want enough money to do community micro grants or mini grants, but I want people to do it like Shark Tank with three minute videos on YouTube. I don't want community members spending months and months and months trying to write a research application, spending all that time or hiring a grant writer. I'm done with all that. I don't understand why we've not innovated in philanthropy space to function the way that community functions instead of asking them to take on the characteristics that we need Mm -hmm. to show their expertise. But then we want to be go-to in the subcontract with them around the community. Like, we're done with that. Let's infuse new ways to get money in the hands of communities that need it and be able to not have to be onerous or burdensome or not have people like me be a gatekeeper. I mean, one of the reasons I, I already foreshadowed this, but you know, I put roots of labor birth collective in every grant I write. Mm-hmm. Not all researchers are like that to be able to maintain or help them to maintain their fiscal sol- solvency over time. But like, that's no way to think about 
unleashing the creativity of our research infrastructure. We need some high risk funders that's really interested in high risk because I'll give you a whole set of ideas, <laughs> right? If we had $100,000, you put that in the hands of black and brown women in the community and micro grants at what, 10,000 a pop? We had this figured out next week. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, I mean, I, because they will unleash things that we haven't thought about mm -hmm. yet, mm -hmm. right? But, but you gotta have somebody, and again, yeah, I'm gonna say two other things, sorry. One is we gotta have public health funded by public health dollars, right? We, we can't be at the mercy of philanthropists. We have to remember as citizens that it is our job to invest in the future. Tax me, I'm down, let's do this. Because if public health exclusively is at the whim or in the domain of philanthropy, then that means we've abdicated our responsibility as citizens mm -hmm. to fund the health of the public. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Yeah. And then we need a diversification of healthcare workforce. I think every person that we serve, we should be seeing as future healthcare providers or public health folks or policy people. We need to engage with the people that we serve and see them as our future workforce. Oh, Dr. McLemore, y'all, give it up. Because that's what I'm doing. Right. And and if we can't think about again, going back to default humans. Right. I think we screwed up. And I say this as having fully participated in this. But when, and Karen Scott talks about this all the time. She couldn't be with us tonight. But, you know, I, I got to shout her out because I don't go anywhere alone and I'm bringing my peeps with me. Um, but when we were moved, like when we got so granular around the human genome project and we mapped the human genome and the, and the path to nursing and medicine became molecular and cell bio or chemistry, we lost the humanities, mm -hmm. right, in, in medicine. We lost liberal arts and sciences in nursing and medicine. And I think we need to bring some of that back. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I always say to the students, they, they always sit and they mouth fall wide open every time I say this, but I'm like, you do realize that five physicians signed a Declaration of Independence. So if anybody tells you that your profession is not political, they are both inaccurate and ahistorical. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about what it took, right, for positioned individuals at that time to sign a document and say, we are no longer under your office, how politically engaged would you have had to have been <laughs> to say, I'm a physician, I'm a scientist? <laughs> So I can't be bothered with folks that don't think we can fix this because I actually think we do. You know, I was born a preemie in 1969. And the fact that birth outcomes have not improved, I'm almost 50. Like, we, we have to not only believe, but also make it so that this could be really different. And we didn't ask you all, as, as students and learners, we didn't ask you all to come in as robots and clones. Mm -hmm. We have to make this better for the future. Like, this is on us, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And when I think about the positionality and the power that I hold, you know, and as a recently tenured, I'm going to really start acting up now. Uh -huh, I'm going to really start. Y'all not really ready because now, mm, you thought I was acting up before. You know? <laughs> But I think we need to bring back not just laboratory scholars, but public scholars, right? People ask me why I was on billboards in 2017. 
uh, PSAs, public service announcements. You see how many people putting up billboards right now trying to get fact-based information out to the public? Mm-hmm. We need to go, we, we, we need y'all and me and us, and we gotta be thinking about like what, what, how can we leverage our current information exchange systems, right? That's why I get mad at my dean all the time because she's not on social media. I'm like, dude. I got to explain stuff to you. Our stu- our learners are talking about you on social media. I got to like screenshot that and send it to you by email. Like, what is that? Like, we need to be thinking about the future. I believe in the future, right? It took me forever to get over my arrogance about being childless for choice. I support everybody else's life. When I realized it's y'all's kids, the people who are brave enough to have children, it's your kids who are going to take care of me when I'm old. It's your kids who are going to create the next use of technology, right? It, I have to invest in the future if I plan on being there, and I do. And so, you know, and I have a, a, a civic responsibility to use the time that I've been here and the power that I have so that the next generation of people can think about, wow, we can optimize like human existence on the planet. This could be some really cool stuff. Right? So for me, I feel this huge responsibility as a citizen, as a faculty member, as a clinical nurse, as a public health person, that for the time that we have on this planet, that we need to be good stewards of it. And right now, I don't think we've been good stewards, not to each other and not to the other species. You know, I, I just don't think that we're, we, we've lost our way and I want us to find our way. Does that make sense? Thank you so much for your... I, I feel like... I feel, that, right? I feel it. And it's so beautiful. We need, we need some narratives that people could feel, right? And, and, a, and a rallying cry that I think can move all of us. I don't participate in our so-called divisive environment. I actually reject that. I think that's part of the problem. And if you see how I manage my social media and how I engage and talk with people, I won't participate in any of that, right? I think it's super important that we take the time, we take the space. We need, people need skills. They need a narrative and they need skills. The people reason that people freeze when they see racist stuff going on, when they freeze when they see xenophobic or transphobic stuff going because they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as an educator, I feel like it's my job to create practice playgrounds for people to really try different things out mm-hmm. and to really have opportunity. Like, let's have a generative lab where we bring nurses and public health practitioners together to talk stuff out. Let's practice. It's one of the reasons why I did a doula and nurse workshop because a lot of times when you get to birth and somebody shows up with their doula, that's contentious. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, nurses never understood these people are paying out of their pocket to have an advocate here. Mm-hmm. Money that they, they probably drove around on Lyft and Uber to be able to get in order to know that their, their wishes will be manifest during what should be the happiest time of their life, right? Mm-hmm. So we, got, we have to own that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I think people need skills and they need practice. And we need to be able to do that in a place that, that is not that doesn't feel so high stakes. 
Mm-hmm. Doesn't feel so public. Oh, I'm gonna get dragged on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. So I I like to use my my classrooms and I like to use conferences for that that play space because I think we can all do better. We can all be better. And let's do this. Let's go. Let's go. Molly, we are so grateful for your your wisdom, your energy, your enthusiasm, the way you lead with love. Um, it's tr- like the energy of this room is on a different vibration for real. Yeah, and, let's do it. and yeah, we're so grateful. Thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And congratulations again on tenure. Woo. That's a party, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> you wait till I get a nap. <laughs> and I'm gonna have a clear plan of what I'm gonna do. All right, we on a new level. Watch out.